Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy, and I am pleased to bring to you Kohelet, Chapter 3. The way I explained the previous chapter, and please remember that this is a very difficult book with more than one way to approach it, so I urge you to read other possible approaches. With any hard text, the explicator, the, the commentator, um, at least the honest ones, try to stick to the text as closely as possible. And then based on their understanding of the majority of the material, they have no choice but, you know, they come up with a general sense of what the author wants to accomplish. And once that point is gotten, then that colors the way the rest of the text is understood, especially the more difficult passages, which means that it makes it makes for a very subjective read, even if you're trying to be objective. Anyway, the way I explained the previous chapter is that Kohelet painted himself into a corner. He stated that one should enjoy the food and the drink and the pleasures that one gets or one masses um, in this life since it's all a gift from God. Moreover, God specifically gives these gifts to the good and the gifts are taken from uh, the toil of the sinner who amasses fortune only to have God taken it away from him and giving given to the good people. But the problem is that that is not demonstrably so. I mean, it's very often not true that the good prosper off of the uh, punishments of the wicked. So Kohelet must deal with the contradiction, essentially, between his philosophy and his experience and what he knows is the experience of the people around him. And he does so by making the following argument, which will extend through the next few chapters and is best described by him in chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, Al-Titma ala chefetz. Now, the word chefetz is a technical term, which means when God desires and decides to make his move, which means, Al-Titma, don't be surprised or shocked, by the absence of God's reaction because it all comes in good time. And that is the sense of this opening verse. And of course, I would be amiss if I didn't mention the uh, famous birds song as we go. Everything has a time set aside for it, and there is a time for every desire, meaning, as I said, what God desires to do under the heavens. Before we begin, there's an important grammatical issue here. It doesn't say likolzman or likolzman, which would mean for every time, but it says lakolzman, which is like saying lehakolzman, for everything there is a time set aside for it. Now, many read this as essentially Kohelet's good advice for mankind. That is, Kohelet is suggesting that man do the appropriate things in the appropriate times. Don't dance at a funeral, don't weep at a wedding, or at least weep for the wrong reasons, don't make war when it's time for peace, and vice versa. However, there are problems, major problems with this understanding. It's really not right. First, it doesn't fit into the overall flow in the book, which was referring to how God gives gifts and rewards to good and evil. The focus is, is God. However, one could argue, of course, that this section is a brand new idea. It doesn't have to flow from the previous section. But a far more serious problem is that not everything mentioned in this song is in man's hands at all such as a time to live and a time to die. That's not up to man, it's up to God. God Coel is obviously not suggesting that people, there's a good time to commit suicide. 
And the most serious problem is that in verse 11, shortly after, you know, as part of the whole song structure, or a little bit after the song, clearly, Kohala clearly states his point, which is, etakol asa yafev ito. God does everything appropriately in its set time, or in his set time. This idea will be repeated by Kohala in the next few chapters. The correct understanding of this song, therefore, is as follows. God does everything when he decides that the time is right and that the time has come for it to happen. Now, this may introduce a problem of predetermination versus free will, but that's a separate discussion. What Kohelet is saying right now is that when it's time to go, it's time to go. God will decide when a person gets to build a house, and God will decide when a person when the house will be destroyed. God will set a time for war, and God will set a time for peace. Kohelet is not really focusing on predetermination here. He's explaining why God's involvement in the world, in justice and righteousness, and in punishing the wicked, as we will see, is not always apparent. And now on to the times. Keep in mind, by the way, that many people have tried to figure out the order and the pattern of these 28 times. Some are positive, some are negative, some the negative comes first and then the positive, then vice versa. How are they grouped together? Um, I should point out that the last, all but the last two are infinitives. To live, to cry, to laugh, to die. Uh, except the last two, which are a time of war and a time of peace. So Raj Bam, uh, Rashi's grandson, says that all the other times fall under those two super categories. Um, Rashi says all these have to do with uh, exile, specifically the Babylonian exile and redemption. But the truth is no solution encompasses everything. So let's just stick to the translation without trying to find a pattern. I'll leave that up to others. Eight la ledet, viet la mut, eight la ta'at, viet la akor natua. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot that which is planted. Eight la harog, viet their po, eight lifrots, viet livnot. A time to put to death and a time to heal, a time to demolish and a time to build. Eight lifkot, viet lishok, eight sefod, viet rakot. A time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast stones, meaning probably from a wall, to take apart a, a surrounding uh, wall that surrounds a field, or perhaps to cast them in war. Uh, a time to gather stones for building of some sort. A time to hug, and a time to distance oneself from a hug. A time to search out that which is lost and a time to lose that which has been found. Again, no one does this intentionally. This is what God sets the time for. A time to rend and a time to sow, a time to be silent and a time to talk. A time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Now, the next verse is difficult in context, since Kohelet returns to negativity as as if he's not comforted by his assertions that God sets these times apart for everything that happens in this world. So what benefit or profit is there for one that does, or that works in all of the toiling that he does. 
um, why is he repeating this idea that he stated in the first chapter when he said in the first chapter, So perhaps he means, now that I've explained that God makes everything happen in his desired time, his chayfetz, what good is it for a man to do anything at all? Which would make this whole question about predetermination. However, I think what's actually happening here is different. I think what's happening here is that Kohelet has introduced this new factor about how God does everything in an appropriate time. Um, and therefore, what he does for the next few verses, including this one, is to go over in short form his old arguments. So first he says, he says as follows, I said that there is no advantage, there's no profit in anything that one does. And then I argued, I observed the business that God gives to human beings to occupy them, which as I explained in chapter 1, is this compulsion, this absurd compulsion to solve everything, to make sense of all the absurdities in the world. Next, Next, then I argued in this chapter that God does everything appropriately in the set time. But even so, God set in man's mind the whole world, that is, but he did it in such a way, in a way that man cannot understand everything that God does from the beginning to the end. Meaning that God has given a mind to, uh, man the mind, the capabilities, the intelligence to see the world around him, but not enough to get a real true knowledge of everything from the beginning to the end. So therefore things seem absurd. Based on that, I argued, Yadati, ki tov bam, ki tov I concluded, I argued that there is nothing better for them, that is for man, than to enjoy life and to do good with his life. Those were the two principles that he presented in chapter two. One, just enjoy what you have now and don't worry about what comes afterwards, that is your successor. And two, do good in God's eyes because then he will give you the reward that you deserve. Which he now repeats in verse 13. It is even so that every person who eats and drinks and sees success from all of his toil, all is that, all, all of, all of that is a gift from God. Uh, means every man, not every time. Uh, and matat is like the word matana in modern Hebrew. So the final conclusion for now is, yadati ki kol asher I conclude that everything that God does is le'olam, which usually means forever, but here I think it means it's immutable. That is, one can't add to it, one can't subtract to it, and why does God limit man's ability to not only be able to change what God does, but to comprehend what God does? God does it, so people will fear him. And that's what Kohelet says. I'm not going to try to spin it. Now, in modern times, we like to focus on Havat Elohim, sometimes more than Yirat Elohim. But Yirat Elohim, like from the Pasuk, Viareta Melohecha, you will be afraid of your God, is an important part of the religious experience. Um, and those in authority know that sometimes in order to keep people on the straight and narrow, even though they don't always agree with the big picture, or at least what they see in the big picture, which sometimes is not the big picture at all, um, that fear goes a long way towards uh, keeping uh, people doing the right thing. Now, I think the next verse, verse 15, starts a new section, even though most commentators uh, think that it's a continuation of this previous section. 
um, because in the verse afterwards, it follows with an introductory word, va'od, and another thing. But I think Kohelet is beginning a new postulate, similar to the one he proposed in chapter 1, but he now changes it based on his new thinking about God. Masha'aya kivar hu, va'asher liyod kivar haya, va'elohim yivakesh et nirdaf, that which was already is, and that which will be already was, but God will seek out the nirdaf, the pursued. On first glance, it looks like this is a restatement of his very pessimistic philosophy in chapter 1. That which was is that which will be, and that which was already done and will be done again. Indeed, there is nothing new under the sun. However, note there's a difference here. The first part does not say, It says, That which was already is. As if to say, listen, what's done is done, and there's nothing you can do about it, which is different than what he says in chapter 1. Also, the question is, what does the word near daf mean? What is it that, that God is seeking out? So Ibn Ezra sees this as a continuation of the previous assertion, and he's saying that essentially God sets it up so time chases time. One thing follows another, which is this circular nature of life as discussed in chapter 1. However, I think that this, as I said, I think that this verse points forward to the next section. And Nirdaf means a person who is pursued in the passive Nifal is otherwise used in Tanakh as people or one who is chased and oppressed. That's the way, what it means in Echa when it says, Al-Tzavarenu Nirdafnu, we were chased up into our necks. Um, and that's the way it's used in Eov and in other places. So perhaps what, what, what God, what, what, he, what Kohelet means here is that God will mivakesh, he will look after people who are unfairly pursued and oppressed. Meaning, listen, what's done is done. Mashayakvarhu. Mashayanasa hushayasen. It's going to continue to be, to be done that way. Oh, I'm sorry, that's from the wrong passage. Vasher lihiyot kvarhaya. And, 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 and what's happening now is probably going to happen into the future. However, valohimi vacation near daf, God will take care of the oppressed in his own good time. The oppressed, the pursued, and then become the focus of the next verse in section 16, which is a, in my opinion, a continuation of this idea. So what caused me to forward this postulate? Another observation that I made under the sun is when I looked at a place of justice, which means the courts, it's a forensic term, there is injustice there. And in the place of righteousness, which is again the, the place, the courts, where tzedek and mishpat are supposed to be done, there is injustice there. The word resha is also being used forensically. It means when people who are villains are winning their court cases, and when people who are innocent are being vilified and convicted unjustly. As I said, under the sun, why does it say under the sun? Because what he's saying is that in this world, when I look at the court cases, which are human run, I see corruption, I see nothing working out right. What he's going to introduce shortly is contrasting that with Olam Haba which he now turns to for comfort, which is a place where people can get real justice, even though, unfortunately, it's not immediate and transparent to human beings. So he proposes the following. That is, after I saw all the justice in human courts, I propose internally, or I try to convince myself, that God will judge the righteous and the villain. He ate l'chol chefetz v'al kol ha'maaseh sham. 
Indeed, there is a set time for all of his, that is God's desire, when he wants things to happen, and everything will be done there, Sham. We again return to the central theme that resolves some problems for Kohelet. How come I can't see God punishing the wicked in this world? And the answer is, because he will decide to do it at a future time. Specifically, he will judge everybody, Sham, there, Bichepzo, when he wants to do so. But since one can't see what happens in the heavens, Kohelet must deal with the next problem. I thought to myself about the matter of God selecting man to see that they are animals. That is what they have. Now, the Hebrew here is very difficult. And it seems that Kohelet may actually be quoting a poetic little ditty, because there's like a little rhyme and pun going on. Shehem behema heim malahem, three times the word heim. Um, also, I want to point out that the word behema, this is very critical. The word behema can mean literally an animal, or it could be a metaphor referring to wicked people. And I mentioned in the first uh, chapter that you always have to watch out for a metaphor translation in, uh, in books of wisdom in, the, in Tanakh. What that would mean is that God purifies or selects out the wicked. That God chooses out the good from the bad. Wicked people, by the way, are described as cows in Psalm 22. So don't be surprised using animal terms to describe wicked people. The word behemoth is also used in chapter 19 to discuss a wicked person. Or, or um, so. So the issue here may not be man versus animal and the differences between them, but good man versus wicked man and the differences between them. Nonetheless, most commentators go with behemah as being literally behemah, beast. So I'll stick with the non-metaphor translation as well. I'll play it both ways and then explain it both ways. Because what happens to humans is what happens to beasts. And what happens to beasts, the same thing happens to both of them. As one dies, so the other dies. They all have the same life force. There is no advantage to man over beasts since everything, meaning that life force is transient, that is eventually it disappears. So once again, I'm tempted to go with the metaphoric translation that the word behemah doesn't mean a beast, but it means beastly people. First of all, in the previous verses, we were talking about the righteous and the wicked. So why would we be switching over to man versus animal? Um, secondly, in chapter 2, when Kohelet mentioned the fact that the same mikred, the same event, will happen to two different kinds of things, it was the wise and the fool. It was the ksil and the chacham that have mikred achalikulam. And what is that Mikran chapter 2? Just like here in chapter 3, it's death that happens to both of them. So therefore, in chapter 2, if he was talking about two different kinds of man, then why would he be talking about two different kinds of man here as well? They all go to the same place. They all come from dust. They all return to dust. So again, you could say that this is referring to the fact that man and animal are the same, and that when they die, they both disappear into the dust. But once again, these are biblical images that are used about mankind, not about animals. This idea of coming from the dust and going back to the dust. In Genesis, when God punishes Adam by returning his mortality... By taking away his immortality, he says, With the sweat of your brow you will eat food and you will return to the ground from which you were taken. 
because dust you are and to dust you will return. Mi Odea, getting back to our chapter, Mi Odea Ruach Bnei Adam Haulehi Lama'ala Ruach now, understanding this verse depends on two very important factors. First of all, as I said, is behema a metaphor for the wicked, as I proposed? Or is Kohelet just discovering, d- discussing the difference between the spiritual afterlife between man and beast? Second, do you trust Jewish tradition? And what, what I mean by this is as followed, follows. The word ha'oleh and ha'yoredet, to ascend and do, to descend, are vocalized with a kamatz or a kamates and a patach, respectively. That means that they are assertions, not questions. It is saying it does ascend, the spirit of man does ascend, and the spirit of the ruach of animals does descend. If these words were questions, does it ascend and does it descend, then the words would be vocalized with a patach under the hay of ha'ola, and a chataf patach, that's with the two little dots next to the patach, <coughs> under the hay of ha'yoredet. Many scholars say that um, the original was a question, and in fact, that's the way it was vocalized. Those were the nikudot. And that somewhere along the way, Jewish scribes changed those nikudot to the kameh, to the patach, in order to uh, make or, uh, to make uh, Kohelet orthodox, so that he shouldn't ask questions about whether human beings have an afterlife as opposed to animals, if they're any different animals. But if we trust our tradition, then Kohelet's question is as follows. Who knows... Just because I know, that is just because we know that man's spirit ascends and, and, and animals' and spirits descend, who knows, going back to the previous section, as a continuation of the previous section of context, who knows whether he will really get a fair trial when he goes to heaven, which is what Kohelet postulated in verse 17 when he said, There, everything will happen well. But even if I assert that, that God, that, that, that man goes up to heaven and as opposed to animals that go down into the ground, how can I know what happens in the afterlife? How do I know that that, that life there, the afterlife, isn't uh, as equally unfair? If God allows unfair things to happen in this life, then how do I know that things won't happen that way in the, uh, in the afterlife? Death is death, and we can't see beyond that barrier, so how could that help me with any of the problems that I'm dealing with in this world? However, once again, I personally like to go back to the idea of a metaphor. I think that Kohelet is saying, who can be sure that the spirit of a good person will go up to the heavens and the spirit of a behemah, a wicked person, will get the judgment that sends him to Sheol to the underworld with no chance of redemption. Finally, whatever it is, the exact doubt which uh, Kohelet is doubting, and there's no question that he's doubting something very serious, uh, a- a- about what happens in the afterlife, what happens after death, to whom it happens, and what w- what takes place there, the result is the same. That is, we're stuck in this world. We can't see beyond that beyond that fence, and therefore we have no choice but to focus on Olam Hazeh, with all of its seeming lack of justice. Viraiti king tov me'asher yismach adam b'masav ki hu so I concluded that there is nothing better for a man than to, than to take joy in what he does, since this is his lot, this is his portion, from God, that is. Why does he have to do that? Since who will bring him? Who will bring him to see what happens after him? Which is nobody. There's, there's no way to know what will happen after death. This probably, almost certainly, refers to the world to come. Um, it's possible that he's talking about the person who inherits after his 
uh, after he is deceased and, and maybe the person who inherits from him will, will, will mess everything up and therefore you have to enjoy, um, this life instead. But I think he's talking about the afterlife. Since you cannot know what happens here, you must focus on the here and the now. Otherwise you will despair completely.